is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Hello and welcome, everyone. My name is Tom Letkin, and I'm a project manager here at the National Bureau of Asian Research. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing the issues of critical minerals, particularly the geopolitics surrounding these minerals, and how the Quad nations of the United States, Japan, Australia, and India can cooperate to address this pressing energy issue. I'm pleased to be joined by two leading experts on this topic, Dr. Kristen Vicasey, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science and School of Policy and International Affairs at the University of Maine, and Dr. Niharika Tagotra of the School of International Studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, Senior Research Specialist at the World Resources Institute of India, and a Clean Edge Asia Fellow at NBR. Thank you both so much for joining us. As the world recalibrates in the wake of an energy crisis brought on both by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and an uneven economic recovery from the pandemic, there's been a great deal of focus in the energy policy community on how this will impact clean energy transitions. Many countries around the world are aiming for net zero emissions in the next 30 or 40 years, and to achieve these ambitious targets will require massive amounts of critical minerals to build the batteries, turbines, solar panels, and other key technologies and infrastructure to get us to a lower carbon future. And from a geopolitical perspective, this new energy network of production, trade, and consumption will rely on the stability of partnerships and processes, many of which have been affected by competition and conflict. NBR's energy and environmental affairs programming over the past year has featured a great deal of scholarship, including work from both of our guests on the topic of critical minerals. And we're very excited to hear from both Dr. Tagotra and Dr. Vacasey today. Uh, Dr. Vacasey, I'll start with you. A lot of your work over the past several years has been focused on Northeast Asia and this issue of geopolitical coercion in, in the critical mineral space. Could you give us a little bit of background and maybe some lessons that the U.S. can learn from places like Japan and South Korea's experience on diversifying their own critical minerals supply chains? Absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for having me here today. And I'm really excited to talk about this topic and to hear the conversation. Uh, so I think that the this story that we should start that we should begin with really starts in uh, 2009 2010 when japan was looking at china and starting to get increasingly concerned about the concentration of rare earth mineral production in china now rare earths despite their name are not geologically rare but the production and the processing of rare earths um, was sort of made rare through industrial policy and some other of other policy issues. In 2009, Japan started to get worried about this. And then 2010, a Chinese fishing trawler rammed into a Japanese Coast Guard ship um, outside in the territorial waters of the Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands, the contested waters between Japan and China. And in the midst of this dispute, which was you know, a complicated diplomatic affair, Japanese companies started to report that they were unable to export rare earths from China to Japan. Now, this was never a confirmed use of economic coercion. The Chinese government 
um, officially said they were not doing it. Um, but Japanese companies and also the Japanese government reacted as if it were economic coercion and started to take a number of different actions to try and diversify the supply of rare earths uh, in ways that I think uh, give us a lot of lessons that we can we can apply to uh, the policies of critical minerals today, um, both mistakes that they that maybe were made, um, as well as some of the successes that Japan had. So this ex is experience of political risk and at least um, perceived economic coercion in 2010 led Japan to actively try to diversify both from both efforts from the pu public sector and the private sector. When other countries were largely you know, talking about diversification, Japan was actually doing it. Some of this, of course, was because of the experience. Um, that was probably a likely necessary, but not sufficient condition. And a lot of it related to Japanese political economy, Japanese political institutions, um, the policy uh, history in Japan. Some of Japan's success in diversification was because of their early movement, because of this experience of political risk, which was likely a necessary but not sufficient condition. But much of it is also related to the political economy tools that Japan has and their their history of uh, government intervention in the economy and public-private cooperation. A lot of this also bears similarity to approaches in South Korea. And so I think what I'd like to do is sort of talk through some of the Japan and South Korea experiences that, that give lessons for the United States. So a big part of this is the institutional infrastructure that Japan and South Korea have. They have employees, regulations, legislation, um, funds, things that the government has to actively support private actors along the supply chain. And the early case in Japan, that was going towards rare earths specifically, but since then, both in Japan and in South Korea, it's expanded um, to other critical minerals, including things like lithium, tungsten, cobalt, other things that we need uh, for technologies in the, the transition to greener energy. In particular, in Japan and in, in, in these two countries, Japan has an organ, organization uh, called uh, JOGMEC, the Japan Oil, Gas and Metals National Corporation. And Korea has an organization called COMIR, the Korea Mine Rehabilitation and Minerals Resources Corporation. Both of these are public uh, corporations. They are supported with money from the state. That's in the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry in Japan and the Ministry of trade industry, and trade, industry, and energy in South Korea. And they provide direct support in a number of different ways to the Japanese or Korean private sector. These organizations have existed for many decades. Um, for example, in Japan, JOGMAC started stockpiling certain minerals and other, and, and other and metals in 1983. Uh, South Korea started doing this in 2007. So there are already some decades of experience in trying to build resilience inside these countries with respect to the supplies of raw materials. Um, Korea, in in its early stages, right, after the after the separation of North and South, was a mining country. They actually exported uh, minerals at that time. For example, they were a big zinc exporter, um, and there was the the organization before Khmer was trying to manage domestic mines, um, and and have a somewhat like the Bureau of Mines in the United States. Um, very soon, as Korea started to grow, they needed more minerals, and they started to have these new a new organization. Um, in order to look abroad 
for a, a more secure supply and a supply of more raw materials. Jogmec in Japan was really similar. So in these periods of high-speed growth in the you know the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, particularly, these organizations existed in order to secure supplies of raw minerals for uh, for the private private corporations, um, largely the the you know, large corporations, the ones maybe we've, we've heard of, um, or most most people have heard of, uh, in in the United States or around the world, um, but also also smaller smaller corporations as well. Um, so some of the approaches they take, they're certainly stockpiling, as I mentioned. Um, they also provide direct financial support, both for initial exploration. So for a company going abroad and saying, we need to do a, a survey here to see if this is a viable mine. So the, Korea in particular provides um, substantial uh, support uh, for, the, for those around the world, including in, certainly in Asia, but also um, around Africa, in Latin America, uh, Central Asia, et cetera. So there's, there's, it's, really, it's a really broad effort. There are, um, uh, in the last four decades, up to 1,000 of those projects, 90 of which were specifically focused on these, these very critical for the green, green uh, transition minerals. Such, such as cobalt. Um, so they they have right, the initial exploration, but increasingly both Jogmec and Comir are providing money for for development after this exploration stage. So a private company in both in both cases, a private company can apply for funds um, th for, through Jogmec or Comir and then go into a joint venture abroad in order to overcome some of the initial risks of opening up a mining project or a downstream processing project and sort of getting getting past that hump and actually moving moving towards uh, production. Most of these, as I said, are public-private partnerships. Um, and one of the key things that has really enabled this to happen is that the interests and the incentives of the private sector match with what the goals of the state. So the private sector is struggling to find more secure and to, to you know, meet the demand of, of that, that they have to make these new technologies. And the state also wants to have a more diverse, a more resilient um, supply chain. And so we have this congruous congruence of interests and that's, those are able to move forward at, at the same time. Um, and I'll, 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 I'll wrap up really quickly just saying that one of the countries, I'd say the key country that has been important both for Japan and Korea, where we have seen success are the partnerships uh, with Australia. There's there there's been a global reach of different projects that are funded by Jogmec, by Comir, as well as a few other a few of the other um, organizations in Japan and Korea. But mostly the projects that have led to actual production and diversification of the supply chain have involved Australia. Thank you for that excellent response, Kristen. I want to come back to this issue of Australia, uh, especially given sort of the, the quad focus, but I'd like to turn to um, Niharika first. Um, Niharika, as, as, a, as a, an expert on these issues and also as a, you know, a scholar of, of, of great repute in India, um, how can India and the United States work together? Because so much of these supply chains and refining capacities are concentrated in China. Um, how can the U.S. and India work together to counterbalance that all near monopoly that China exercises in this space uh, within, you know, the, the critical mineral supply chain? Thanks. Thanks so much, Tom. I think um, I'm just going to take a minute here to also kind of 
uh, first dwell upon how the Chinese monopoly of these critical mineral supply chains is impacting India. I think this kind of made itself evident um, very starkly during the US-China trade war per se that probably happened during the 2019. And I think that is when it was, there was a global realization regarding how the uh, the the possible monopolization of these supply chains is going to impact different industries and how this was a major challenge for the clean energy industry per se. And I think it was during the COVID crisis when the supply chains were badly impacted, considering that the, the COVID um, disease basically uh, first affected China and then it spread to the rest of the world. And it was the Chinese, the uh, supply chains that were originating from China were majorly impacted in the first instance. And that was when um, there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of thinking that went on within the Indian establishment in terms of how uh, the supply chains of these minerals that are um, processed and produced uh, majorly by the Chinese firms are uh, right now um, key inputs and key raw materials to Indian manufacturing industry and more so for uh, the clean energy industry in India. And uh, that is when I think there was a thinking that there needs to be a shift away from, um, you know, some of these minerals. There was there was a need to diversify some of these supply chains. And that is when uh, a lot of these schemes um, were announced by the government of India. There were schemes regarding um, production-linked incentives in uh, solar panels. There were schemes regarding pr production-linked incentives in batteries and electric vehicles. But somehow uh, the import dependence for raw materials uh, continued to haunt the strategic thinking uh, within the Indian policy establishment. And I think um, the idea then took shape uh, with, uh, you know, somehow the coming together of the Quad countries and uh, when the whole Quad uh, grouping was, was being developed. Um, the diversification of supply chains was a major um, aspect on which these two you know these four countries were dwelling upon and that is how that is in my thinking i think that uh, the rare earths the diversification of supply chains of these rare earths was also an idea that originated you know within the quad thinking and as we know over the years it has taken us you know a, a, it has it it it, it is uh, being concretized um, in one way or the other and uh, considering this background, I think uh, it's the question becomes all the more relevant in the current context, given that the G20 meeting is supposed to happen in India this year. And there is a lot of thinking that is going on, not just within the Indian government, but also outside the government in terms of, you know, within the academia, within the research circles, with respect to these critical minerals. And this has been pushed by the fact that India is aiming for a 500 gigawatt um, renewable energy production most of which is aimed to come from, um, you know, the domestic industry. The technologies are going to be manufactured in India. The idea is to make India self-reliant, which means that 90% of these technologies will be manufactured within India. And the there there is a lot of thinking going on in terms of what is the demand going to look like for these technologies and emanating from this demand, what is the demand for critical minerals going to look like? until 2050 or 2070, which is the net zero year that India has declared for itself. And in this regard, I think um, the thinking is now being directed in the direction of 
enhanced diversification of supply chains, uh, substitution of technologies, and of course, there's a lot of emphasis on reuse and recycling. But if you look at the first two aspects, which is the diversification of supply chains and you know substitution of technology, this would require a lot of international collaboration. This would require a lot of countries which already have the means or the access to certain technologies to come together and kind of collaborate with countries that are still looking for access to uh, clean energy technologies. We know that the case of India is different from the case of US, Japan or South Korea, the latter three being highly developed countries and India is still a developing country. Coal is still the mainstay of Indian energy uh, uh, supply. And for India to move towards clean energy technology, for India to move towards renewable energy, there's a huge amount of investment that's needed to the tune of billions of dollars. And I think both access to technology and the demand for finance, which is affordable, are a prerequisite for not just a country like India, but also for other developing countries to make that shift towards clean energy technology. So in case of the critical minerals and the rare earth minerals, I also believe that enhanced collaboration between the developed countries, not just US and India, but you know all the countries that have the access to certain technologies and have the you know and can come together for pooling of uh, finance for pooling of resources that can be accessed by certain countries to uh, you know to promote domestic innovation to promote um, you know innovation in technologies that can be alternative to the to the uh, technologies that already exist so for instance when we look at lithium ion batteries they are ca considered an alternate uh, technology to to the metal uh, batteries or the lead acid batteries that we are already using but if we need to reduce the dependence on lithium ion batteries then there needs to be another form of battery that needs to come into the picture there's a lot of emphasis going on over green hydrogen so that's another kind of alternate fuel that india is exploring but like i said you know there are a lot of ideas that are going around there there's a lot of thought process that's going around but for that thought process to become a reality there's a lot of there's a need for affordable finance there's a need for access to certain kinds of technologies and i think that is where international collaboration becomes the mainstay thank you naharika yeah. that's an excellent point on access to finance and affordability of finance i think um i do want to i do want to move uh quickly to some to some quad related questions but while we have an expert on india here i would like to date this podcast a little bit and touch on a pretty recent development. Um, could you speak a little bit more about the this recent discovery of relatively large lithium reserves in uh, Jammu and Kashmir uh, and what this could mean for India's role in the global critical mineral supply chains? Well, I am uh, for one reason very excited about this discovery because this happens right in my home state. And uh, it's a it's a huge coincidence that for somebody who's already working in this domain, my own home state deserves proven reserves of 5.9 million tons of lithium, which is a huge deal. And I think there's a lot of hope that it's added to the Indian industry, to the Indian policy establishment, the Indian government, which has repeatedly said that, you know, of course, uh, it will take time for extraction. It will take time for converting these reserves into something that can be commercially used, uh, say within the battery storage or within the electric vehicle industry. But the fact that you know there is some amount of 
in fact, large amounts of lithium that have been found within the country. And that would um, take some pressure off uh, on our imports uh, that we are looking at. We are looking at, you know, a, a doubling or a tripling of imports in the coming few years, considering that the demand for, um, you know, certain minerals are going to go up because, you know, that that energy transition, that energy shift is already happening. But the good thing is that if a lot of these imports can be domestically sourced, then um, we do have that kind of buffer for ourselves to also explore certain alternative technologies. So, yes, I think there's a lot of excitement with respect to this discovery, but we'll still have to see how much of this can be commercially, um, how much of this is commercially viable, how much of this can be actually put into use. Uh, but yeah, for now, I think for starters, there's there's a lot of, uh, lot of excitement about this. Excellent. Kristen, any any follow on thoughts on on our current events question here? Well, I, I really like uh, Dr. Tagotra's points about about finance and about collaboration and cooperation. And I think that this this discovery, this discussion of of 5.9 million tons of lithium that was right not the part of the, uh, the global supply perhaps that we were talking about before brings up a, a really important point about the critical mineral space generally is that we have a particular geography of critical minerals and each mineral of course has its own geography and its own risk profile but many of them are highly geographically concentrated both in terms of mining and also then in terms of of uh, post-processing, either separation or refinement or, you know, along the supply chain. But those, like rare earths, many of those very, very uh, concentrated geographies are not matters of geography. They're not things that are set. They're things that maybe we don't we don't know where things are because the initial exploration hasn't been done. Maybe the maybe the mining has only been done in places because sort of nasty illiberal regimes that aren't don't care much for the uh, populations are saying, oh, we'll just you know do nasty surface mining here. Right? They often could be very, very environmentally destructive to do these processes. Um, so, so some of one of a recent piece of research I published that uh, just came out in this book called Critical Minerals, the Climate Crisis and the Tech Imperium, um, I talk about the the geography of rare earth mining and rare earth processing. And one of the things that I find in this chapter is that so so right now, almost half, 46% of existing or likely mines for rare earths are in liberal democracies with strong property rights protection, like places where we might be able to do it right, to pay attention to local stakeholders, to have good environmental regulations, right? We might be able to do this right for our, our green tech supply chains. But only 25% of global production is happening there. So there's a mismatch, right? We could be doing, we could be doing more. There are there are deep reserves. Um, illiberal authoritarian regimes with weak property rights protection are about 30% of mines, but about 60% of global production. Right? So there's this real mismatch, and we can you know we could do, and and some people kind of have for a different minerals um, to see those geographic and risk profiles, but there are there are opportunities for collaboration and for for again, doing doing this right, as we maybe haven't done in the past, in order to solve some of our tech problems and our raw, raw, re, raw materials um, shortage problems. 
Um, no, absolutely, Dr. Vekasi. I think um, there's a very important point that you've touched upon, and that's also something that um, you know we are looking at as a part of our own research, which is the equity and the fairness and the just transition aspects of critical mineral mining. And uh, I think uh, what Professor has just pointed out to is is one very important aspect of this, you know of this because uh, mining as we all know um, in countries where the normative and the regulatory regime is not very strong uh, it can become an exploitative process it can become it can become uh, you know it can raise issues of equity and fairness uh, within the uh, domestic population and uh, it's also something that we need to consider at a very early stage. We are still internationally, we are still at a level where the discussions regarding the mining of such minerals are in their uh, primary stage. I would like to uh, see it like that. And this is probably the right time for countries to come together and hold that kind of discussion in terms of setting that very strong uh, normative, very strong, strong regulatory and policy framework for ensuring that um, wherever you know these minerals are mined, uh, they are mined adhering to certain norms and regulations that and international standards that are set together, um, you know, by countries. And this is where I think um, you know some of these platforms, such as the G20, um, you know, some of these other international platforms, offer an opportunity for countries to come together and and collaborate. Yes. Thank you both. That's an excellent segue to our next question, um, focusing more specifically on the Quad. Um, through a coordination among the Quad countries, with Australia having a strong potential for sourcing critical minerals, would it be possible to reshore critical mineral supply chains away from China's influence? And if so, how would that process take shape? I guess we can start with uh, Dr. McCasey. Okay, excellent. So to some extent, this process has already begun, and we, we see a lot of movement um, in, in terms of, I wouldn't say reshoring specifically, but maybe international diversification um, and um, uh, non-Chinese, non civilian non-Chinese supply chains in some critical minerals. Uh, some of this is happening through the processes that, that I talked about before. So for example, Jogmak and Komir and, and Japanese and South Korean companies have been uh, making a lot of inroads into diversifying. That's happened uh, through cooperation with Australia as well as um, there have been a lot of projects uh, started in Vietnam, in, in India, um, in, uh, in Kazakhstan. Not all of these have worked out. Many of them have, have not worked out, of a point maybe I'll, I'll come back to later. Um, but there, right, there already have been a lot of, a lot of efforts uh, to try and diversify the supply chain. Uh, Australia and the United States have, over the last few years, uh, been working to try and build, to, to reshore um, some critical mineral supply chains to the United States, um, as well as just to, to develop more infrastructure in Australia. I mean, I, I, Australia is really an interesting story in that in 2000, after 2010, when Japan started to do these big investments with the company called Linus in Australia, they really struggled. And they, in fact, uh, neared bankruptcy and Linus needed a bailout. And the Australian government said no at that point. And 
Ed's in, in response, Jogmax stepped in along with uh, uh, Japanese private sector and and saved Linus from bankruptcy, and they made it past that, and now they are they're actively producing and are one of the you know, larger rare earth uh, companies uh, outside of China today. In the last few years, all the Australian government has started to take new initiatives, and for example, they are they're um, funding a new rare earth project. Um, they're funding a project called the Hastings Project. Um, there there was some initial resistance to that uh, within within a you know, very free free market oriented Australian government, but um, they. They have stepped up to putting government funds into trying to develop more mines, but in particular to try and develop capacity downstream. So like separation and refining um, facilities and um, things like that. So there's these new movements in Australian politics that open up new opportunities for um, for friendshoring or diversification or what, what, whatever we, we would like to call it. Um, in the United States, particularly, uh, there was a, a deal um, from November of 2019 between Geoscience Australia and the U.S. Geological Survey on rare earths, cobalt, and tungsten. Right, there's a bunch of development projects there, um, but there's also a a a fairly large project that's been in the works for a long time, and they hope to start produ produ production by 2025 um, between Linus, um, with, with the Australian company Linus in the United States. And that has some financial support from uh, DOD. So, well, again, this project has been in the works for a very long time. It would be a very big deal for the United States to have a functioning uh, separation and refinement facility onshore. Um, so even when we've been mining in the United States, a lot of uh, the rare earths uh, have been shipped to China um, for it for that process because the Chinese are really good at it. Um, so that would be that would be a really big deal, and and we we see a lot of different sort of initiatives between Australia and the United States, Australia and other countries. Um, some of this is multilateral. Some of the norm setting is starting to be multilateral through things like like the Quad, like the Mineral Security Partnership. Um, there's language in the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Um, the Korea-Australia Critical Mineral Agreement, the Japan-Australia-India Supply Chain Resilience Initiative, right? There's all of these different initiatives to try and write ESG standards, to try and get some shared norms and standards into these into these initiatives. Um, and then a lot of it is just is happening at this project by project level, right? Um, um, often, or hopefully, I'd say, between countries that um, share, have some of these ESG standards written, written into um, domestic legal frameworks. I think um, Australia is a standout country in the sense that it's a country that is rich in certain uh, critical minerals and also it's a progressive liberal country with very strong regulatory regimes in place, which is not the case with several of these other countries that have that are rich in uh, certain kinds of critical minerals. Uh, there are countries that are, that are in Africa with very, uh, you know, they are under some oppressive regimes. There are countries um, that are not so liberal or have very fragile uh, political systems in um, Latin America. And these are countries where um, the regulatory regimes are not very strong. And we do have uh, countries um using that uh, that opportunity to kind of enter into some sort of uh, G2G um, agreements for the exploitation of these resources. And I think um, this is where uh, this is the point where Australia kind of stands out because Australia then has the then can play that lead leading role in setting those very strong 
regulatory standards in discussion with all these other countries where um, its supplies uh, its supplies are headed towards and considering the fact that it's such an important member of the of the quad and um, the fact that um, the quad consists of countries that are both uh, you know high in supply and high in demand so that is a good balance of of um, interests and i think that is where um, you know when these when these regimes these institutional structures are set up they can um, they can become uh, they can become a useful precedent of what could follow in the future thank you both that's really insightful and i think highlights as you said dr takotra the the pairing in the quad is a very natural one right in in some of this spaces um i guess sort of as a final question to sort of close this out um how do you see the future of critical minerals um in the united states for us allies in asia um what's the next few decades look like uh from your perspective you know honestly given the scale of um, industrial competitiveness and you know manufacturing agility that's there in the united states i uh, am predicting in the next 10 years uh, a shift to probably an alternative form of technology within the us that may not at all require um, you know such a huge amount of dependence on critical mineral imports uh, that's one uh, that's one probability in the future uh the second probability is that you know the department of energy within the united states has come out with its own critical mineral strategy and besides other things that strategy focuses a lot on reuse and recycling and i think that is one aspect that um will add to uh you know will compensate for the domestic the demand that's emanating from within the united states uh that's you know that's that's my best guess for um, you know how things are going to shape up within the clean energy industry of the us for its allies in in countries like asia um especially for a country like india i don't think um you know that that shift to anything alternate or you know a substitute form of technology is going to be so it's is going to be very smooth i feel um you know there are certain inherent uh, fundamental roadblocks to uh, this kind of shift um to be undertaken by a country uh, by a country like india and i think this presents a massive challenge for um, you know india which is already looking to cut down on its emissions and make that shift towards cleaner forms of energy and i think this is where a lot of thinking will need to go in uh, not just for a country like india but also for countries that are behind india so, you know a lot of african countries that are still venturing into the clean energy space a lot of um, uh, central asian economies that are venturing into the clean energy space i think for countries that that are still trying to find a foothold within this uh, clean energy space um, a lot of thinking needs to be redirected in that direction and i think a lot of that demand for critical minerals is then going to emanate from these countries and not the bigger economies because i still feel that the bigger economies have a lot of financial bandwidth have a lot of technological prowess to make that that technological substitution to make that kind of technological shift you know very easily whereas for some of these other countries that's probably not going to be uh, so easy so there's a term we call in energy um, you know in 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 the energy uh, lexicon there's a term called energy leapfrogging which i think is going to be very easy for the developed countries but uh, probably not that smooth and probably extremely challenging for some of the other developing countries 
Uh, those are really those are really great points, and um, the I, I like that comparison. I like that comparison a lot. One of the things that it made me think about was in terms of reuse and recycling, and, and particularly just think, thinking about innovations. That in 2010 in Japan, along with initial efforts at funding diversification, the Japanese government also started to fund a re, uh, innovation in recycling and substitution research. And, and some of that has been, has really you know, led to reduction of, of some of these metals in key Japanese products and, and batteries in particular, some, some motors. And there's, and, and we see also in the United States, uh, some investment from the government in basic R&D, right? Some, some of this basic research that might, that might help with these innovations. One of the, I, I agree that there's deep level, a deep bench of potential expertise in, in the developing country or the, excuse me, the developed countries, but it's also something that needs to be maybe incentivized and nurtured and the, in some of the critical mineral space in the United States, for example, we've seen a real hollowing out of expertise and we don't have the next generation of scientists like we had decades ago because you know, people have just moved into other things. And so that's something that um, I think there's some movement right now to trying to build more expertise, or we have some of some of our national labs in the United States are are moving right towards more more training. There's also our international efforts to bring experts together from Canada, Australia, the United States, Japan, uh, the UK, the EU. Um, uh, they before the pandemic, they used to meet every six months or so. Um, I'm not sure exactly how frequently it's been it's been since then. But those those things happen because of intention, and and they you know the private sector may not just take care of it without without some sort of push or some sort of input of basic research like we used to see in the United States more in the you know the 50s and 60s. Um, so that's something that I think I see movement towards that in the United States. I hope that we see more in the future, um, and the so we could maybe see some of this leapfrogging. And then in an ideal world, we would also see um, collaboration and technological uh, teaching and learning across around the world. Um, to So we could um, see alternative technologies being adopted around the world and not just in, in enriched, rich, advanced countries. Um, the one other last thing that I'd really like to point out is that in the short term, or even in the medium term, I'm thinking 10 years out, I would say, that we we do need more critical minerals and that it's a, a sector that typically lacks transparency, uh, typically has fairly high market risks, uh, has high price risks, and they end, these projects have really been long time horizons, right? 10 years, 20 years before something will actually, actually produce. And so when we have either government incentives, but also you know, private sector incentives that go into this space, there will be, we have to be prepared for failure as well as success. And the stories that I, of the projects that I've looked at from Japan and South Korea, as, as well as from other countries, um, including certainly many projects in the United States, most of them fail. 
and we can look at the successes and and, and learn from those but we should also uh, learn learn from the failures one of the failures is is that there's not an, enough capital um, to get over these initial risks, particularly when prices fall. Governments can help there. That's what Jogmac and Comir have done. Um, and another one of the risks is that if you do not take the interests of, of local communities very seriously, then then the, the, pro the projects will not have local support and that also can really lead to failure. So this needs, needs to be done in a, in a careful way, in a way that takes local stakeholders very seriously and in a way that has um, that where often these smaller companies that are starting this project have sufficient capital to make it past initial initial market risks. So I'm I'm we we already see a lot of movement. I'm I'm optimistic that the world can meet at least this this challenge, um, and I hope we can do it in a way that's just and equitable um, and with long term success for the energy transition. Yes. So. I think um, my thoughts uh, continue to center around the fact that we are still in very early stages of, you know, uh, the clean technology and the renewable energy landscape. And I think this provides us with a lot of opportunities. And I think um, given the fact that a lot of thinking is already going on across the, you know, across countries, it's going on within countries to come up with some sort of, you know, some sort of uh, legal and regulatory frameworks so that the critical minerals and these rare earths don't turn into another kind of oil uh, where there, where we've already seen a lot of monopolization. We've already seen a lot of <clears throat> geopolitics that has gone into it. And we don't want that uh, to happen again with critical minerals. And I think we are at a good stage. And this is a good stage where certain discussions and dialogues within the countries, within the governments, within the private sector can happen uh, to prevent that sort of the same scenario repeating itself within this particular energy commodity. So I think I look at it with a lot of hope, as uh, Dr. Vekasi said, that um, there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of uh, enthusiasm over where we stand. But how far we go from here will only depend on the kind of approach uh, we adopt not just as countries, but also as communities. Yeah. Well, thank you both. I'm ever an optimist and I always like ending on an optimistic note. This can be you know, a very complicated and, and uncertain topic to delve into. And I was really appreciative of having two such excellent guides as yourselves to get us through what is one of the leading issues, I think, in the energy transition. Thank you both so much for joining us today. And thank you all for listening to this episode of NBR's podcast. My name's Tom Lutkin, and please stay tuned for more uh, Critical Minerals and other energy and environmental programming coming from NBR's team very soon. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.